what's your dream vacation look like? Maybe you'd like to time travel as you wander the cozy lanes of Edinburgh and imagine what it was like to live there once upon a time. If you look up, you'll see just how little daylight that people had in the medieval times. You could follow the crowds in Sevilla, where there's likely to be a dramatic street parade nearby during Semana Santa. The float turns around the corner and you see those beautiful candles lit up. You smell the incense and then everybody gets perfectly quiet to give respect as the Virgin passes. And then you go on and you see the next one and the next one and the next one. It's a whole week of that. Or maybe you'd enjoy attending a late-night art party with a young and interesting crowd at one of the great museums in Amsterdam. There are parties going on, so you can drink a cocktail in the Van Gogh Museum. Let's imagine the possibilities together in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. One of the few things certain about this coronavirus pandemic is that this crisis will pass. Sooner or later, it'll pass and we'll be back to normal. And when that day comes, all of us will eagerly turn our pent-up travel dreams into smooth and bursting-with-fun reality. Let's continue to share our travel dreams together on Travel with Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, our virtual travels bring us a millennial's take on enjoying yourself in the Netherlands. We'll also stroll the sights on a guided walk around Edinburgh, get a taste of the passionate atmosphere in Andalusia, and go searching for Venus in the hour ahead. The Netherlands seem to specialize in festivals, holidays, and fun ways for the millennial generation to celebrate life. To learn how we travelers of all ages can get in on the fun, we're joined in our studio by tour guide sisters, Jodi and Ruby van Engelsdorf, who both happen to be millennials. Jodi and Ruby, thanks for being here. Thanks Th- for having us. Yes. You are, you're actually twins. we got Ruby and Jodi. And uh, is one of you older? Yes, me, Ruby. I'm one minute older than Jodi. Oh, oh, one minute older. So, Jodi, how do you two differ in your temperaments? Well, I'm always told that Ruby is a nice one. <laughs> Which is true. Uh, I am um, a little bit more direct, as a lot of Dutch people are. I think I'm um, a little bit more uh, outspoken, where Ruby is always very patient and, and okay. lovingly. and yeah. So you compliment each other. We do, I think Probably so. Probably travel yes. well together. But yeah. the Dutch are famous for being direct. Yes, we are, yeah. This is uh, so fun to think about generational differences and so on. In America, I'm what we call a baby boomer. And you got in America, people in their 20s and 30s are generally millennials. Uh, do the Dutch uh, look at generations in certain ways like that also? Yes, exactly the same. We have baby boomers. Our parents are baby boomers. And uh, yeah, we're the millennials. So millennials, people in their 20s and 30s, Gen X, people in their 40s, baby boomers, people in their 50s and 60s. Baby mm-hmm. boomers being the most interesting and fun-loving and entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tell me about the characteristics of millennials in the Netherlands. Uh, well, it's probably very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, we millennials, because we got handed everything to us, right? We always learned when we were growing up, everything is possible, everything you wanted to do. And instead of creating people who are very secure in what they want to do, we're all very insecure. And we're very, we're like, oh, what am I going to do? And like every 10 years we change jobs. And uh, there's a lot of entrepreneurs. So a lot of people who want to create their own little thing. But we're all sort of 
it's also known that we're kind of unhappy with everything yes. because we can have everything, we're unhappy. So a little bit spoiled, life <laughs> came spoiled, easy. Spoiled, yes. And <laughs> impatient, you want it now. Yes. And if you don't get it now, you'll go somewhere else. Yeah, and uh, we're all mm-hmm. depressed. And <laughs> yeah, we invented the burnout, I think. <laughs> You're still alive and kicking. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jodi van Engelsdorp and her twin, who's one minute older, Ruby van Engelsdorp. We're talking about millennials. And when we think about having fun as tourists, we can learn a lot by having fun as millennials. Millennials love, it seems like, in the Netherlands, parties and festivals. Uh, Jody, what's what's an example of a festival that a millennial looks forward to every year in Amsterdam? We love King's Day. That is uh, one of our favorite ones. Um, it's not We do not have as many festivals in Amsterdam anymore, more though. So uh, Amsterdam, because it's such a busy city, mm-hmm. uh, they try to kind of take people away from Amsterdam. So if you want to experience the holidays, like King's Day or Liberation Day, uh, it's better to go to one of the less bigger cities. Okay, so, such as, well, what's the city you'd like to go to for one of these big holidays? I like holidays? to go to Harlem, because Harlem? of course I am from Harlem. Yeah. So we always love Liberation Day. That is, in Harlem, it's known to have the biggest festival on Liberation Day. So that's 5th of May, we got freed from the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And uh, every year we celebrate our freedom. It's just really fun with a lot of uh, artists and music. And so yeah, 5th mm-hmm. of May. I remember the festival. Yeah, Amsterdam is getting so congested, so touristy. I was there for a King's Day once, and there's so many boats. You could walk across the canal just from boat to boat. It was just solid boats in the canals. But people were certainly having a great time. Ruby, if you think of a festival that you look forward to, what would it be every year? I always look forward to the food festivals. (laughs) There are many food festivals around uh, Amsterdam. And we have uh, Schulus, that's a festival in the neighborhood of Amsterdam, um, where people go to, they have to take off their shoes and walk barefooted. It's, uh, it's of course, sh- when a it's shoeless festival. a shoeless festival. They have a lot of food everywhere, uh, a <laughs> bit of electro seems, music. <laughs> it seems, okay, let's take yeah. me to one of these food festivals then. Okay, mm-hmm. so what kind of food would you be enjoying? Um, you would be enjoying some sushi, uh, tacos, but also some local foods like French fries. Uh, the real food festivals, they have a hundred stands and you can try a little bit of everything. And Jodi, when you think about food in the Netherlands, you think also about the Netherlands' colonial history and a lot of your former colonies would have a food imprint on the capital. Uh, what kind of food from your empire would you be eating? And we would be eating Indonesian food. And uh, that is also what you have in Den Haag is where we have a very big group, yeah, Indonesian culture. And that's uh, where you have uh, Indonesian food festivals. In The Hague. That's where my favorite Indonesian meal I ever had was a rice tafel in The Hague. That's where you have to be for the best Indonesian food. Now, Ruby said uh, there's a lot of music at the festivals. Even at a food festival, you'd have fun music. What kind of music do people like? when they go to these festivals? At the moment, so the Dutch are very big in electrical music. So techno, for instance, is a big at the moment. We have some of the best DJs. Some might know DJ Tiesto. He's from the Netherlands. It's not my favorite music, but that is what we are enjoying a lot right so now. that draws a, an enthusiastic millennial yes, crowd. a whole lot. Of, yeah, it's, it's where you experience the good electrical Festivals. What, is, uh, um, what drugs go with electronic music? Anything from 
ecstasy to marijuana or whatever you like. But yeah, of course, it's not legal in the Netherlands. Uh, what's tolerated is marijuana products. Mm-hmm. But um, we have a lot of party drugs. And uh, the Netherlands actually is one, sadly, but uh, one of the biggest exporters in ecstasy. We have an open mind in it. So it's mm-hmm. illegal. But at these festivals, you can test your drugs because we are very realistic people. And we know that people are going to these parties having drugs. Mm-hmm. And um, so on these festivals, you can go to a stand where you can test your drugs. Oh, test it. I thought you meant like sample, but test it to see if it's safe, you mean? Yes. Yeah, because you cannot buy it on the festival. And they are every year they're checking better and better on people having drugs. So, so that's very pragmatic. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jody Van Engelsdorf and Ruby Van Engelsdorf, twins, both tour guides that come to our studio today to talk about what's going on in the Netherlands. What are some fun ways that are just trendy now for millennials to pass the time? Well, millennials, uh, well, we've been grown up with games, gaming, uh, Game Boy, everything. So nowadays, it's not very social to sit behind your computer. So we like to go to game cafes. It's a cafe and there are a lot of board games and everyone sits around, has a local beer and they are playing a nice uh, board game. And, and a tourist could drop by one of these game of bars? Of course, they could drop by and uh, if it's all explained in Dutch, the game bar owner can explain to you in English what the game rules yeah. are. And we have a lot of escape rooms as well. And so, so Yodi, you might go to a game bar and not even have somebody you're going to play the game with yet, but meet somebody there? Yeah, you can do that. If you had a friend coming to visit you from the United States, what would you invite them to do to have the most fun? Ruby. Uh, well, I would go to Amsterdam with them. I would show them all of the nice food we have in the Netherlands, maybe take them on a nice food tour. There are food tours everywhere in Amsterdam now. They uh, take you within two hours to a lot of different places where you can try out different cuisines. So let's just talk about that. You go on a food tour. It's a wonderful experience. And you stop at five different places in the afternoon and you eat Mm -hmm. five different little morsels. What would those five things be? Yeah, so uh, definitely stroopwafels. So that's a syrup waffle, a syrup waffle. Syrup that's a waffle. beautiful thing. Yeah, that's yes. Dutch. Yes, you have to have them fresh. Um, maybe some poffertjes. So that's the, the puffy small pancakes. So it's like a little donut with powdered sugar on it? And yes. Does it come with chocolate also? or? Um, if you like. But, but it's just uh, fresh cooked. It's a little like a donut ball almost, isn't it? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they uh, cook it in front of you. You get some icing sugar and oh, some I butter with it. Yeah. And then what's another stop you'd have? Uh, you have to have herring. Uh, so the uh, raw herring. Raw herring. Yes. I love that. And you go to an Indonesian place to try some uh, satay. Um, mm. French fries. Fries, fries ah. of course. Well, the uh, Belgium fries, actually. But fries yeah. you'd have. Because that yeah. is really a, like a ritual in the Netherlands to have your French fries. <laughs> and what do you dip it in? Uh, mayonnaise. White mayonnaise. Yes, white mayonnaise. That takes some getting used to, but it's very oh, Dutch. It's delicious. You have to try. <laughs> so you had four Dutch things and mm. one Indonesian thing. Yeah. And Jody. So in the summer, I love to take them to the beach and then go to some music. So we have Sandvoort uh, and also Den Haag, so uh, Scheveningen, where you always have music scenes going on. Say those three cities again the, mm. the, uh, along, the, along the beach Oh, yeah. Front. So um, you Zandvoort. have Sandvoort. Yeah. 
and, uh, uh, which is close to Amsterdam, only like a 40-minute ride. And then you have Scheveningen. Scheveningen is the beach that is close to Den Haag. Yes. And that's a very difficult name to say. Yeah. Say it again. Scheveningen. And then what was the third town that was good to go to on the beach? And Den Haag, yeah. Yes, yeah, so in the beach, on the beach you can always enjoy music and food. But if you're coming in the fall, that is when you have a lot of museum nights, which are really exciting. Uh, it is more for uh, yeah, the younger crowds who do not always like to go to museums. It's really wild. You have one night, uh, you buy a ticket for 19 euros, for instance, in Amsterdam, but it's in all of the cities. Most cities we do it. And for these 19 euros, you can visit all the museums in Amsterdam between 7 and 2 o'clock and there are parties going on so you can drink a cocktail in the Van Gogh Museum and then you go to the next one and there's always all these real fun experiences. So the Rijksmuseum, the Van Gogh Museum, all of these great museums are open until two in the morning and yes. you just pay about $20 for your ticket mm-hmm. and it's like an art party. Yeah, it's really fun. Fantastic. So many ways to have fun in the Netherlands. Jodi van Engelsdorf and Ruby van Engelsdorf. Dank u wel. Dank u wel. <laughs> Next, tour guides from Scotland take us on a walking tour of grand and elegant Edinburgh. Guides from Spain have pointers for Andalusia in the sunny south of Spain. And we'll look for Venus in the art museums of Europe. We're at 877-333-7425. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. Coronavirus has put countless travel dreams on hold. And until we overcome this crisis, many will stay on hold. But to dream on and plan future travels is good medicine for those of us who will forever be dreaming of new places to explore. I'm thankful we get to share our travel dreams together right here on Travel with Rick Steves. For me, the best way to really enjoy a great city is on foot. You know, I don't think I can think of a city that's better suited to be seen on foot than Edinburgh, the capital of Scotland. It's a great urban design you got the old town filling a ridge, going from the castle on the top one mile down the Royal Mile to the palace. The walk is gently downhill. It's a montage of fascinating sights and wonderful historic architecture. And it's beautifully preserved. Sure, it's touristy, but it's an amazing experience. There's so much. That's just the beginning to see and do in Edinburgh. And we're joined by two Scottish tour guides who earn their living for many years now, taking individuals who are venturing into their city around the capital of Scotland. Helen Houston and Liz Lister, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. You are just blessed to be tour guides in a city as beautiful and interesting as Edinburgh, I've got to say. Helen, as a tour guide, what's the challenge? What do you want to accomplish when they come to your city? Oh, I think you've got to see, when you come to Edinburgh, you've got to see more than just all the people around. You've got to look up, see the buildings, and try to feel how it was. You go into the back alleys, go into the alleyways and go round the back of the buildings. Most people stick to the Royal Mile. But if you've got the courage to go down some of the closes, a close is the way down to an enclosure where they used to keep the animals. So a close is like a little tiny alley or something. And because of the density of the architecture, a lot of times it's like a tunnel, isn't it? It's like a tunnel. If you look up, you'll see just how little daylight that people had in the medieval times, and just yeah. up until about the 1700s, 
Now, Liz, when we think about this intensity of an urban environment in the centuries past, Edinburgh's nickname was Old Reeky. That's right. Old Reeky means old smoky or old smelly. A reek can be both smoke and smell. Glasgow had all the manufacturing, but Edinburgh was the capital and Edinburgh was the centre for trade. And so people would move into Edinburgh until it became more and more overcrowded. Because it's built with two gorges on either side, the only way that they could go was up. And so it became more overcrowded, more unsanitary. You had the spread of disease, you had dirt and squalor, and worst of all, fire, which could rip through between Mm. these very close buildings. And you had such dense population there that it drove the architecture up and consequently some of, you could say, some of the first skyscrapers. What, Absolutely. Eight or, eight or ten stories tall. Medieval Manhattan is one of the names that Edinburgh goes by. From a tourist point of view, I'm trying to always organize things so people are not overwhelmed and what's the easy, comfortable, fun way to experience this. And what I love is about a one-mile walk, gently downhill, from a castle to a palace. It's perfect. Let's take a walk from the top of Edinburgh on the rock down to the palace. And the castle is built up on the rock. On the very Helen. top. The castle is built on the very top of the rock, on top of the crag. The feature is called a crag and tail feature. So the Royal Mile is actually going down the tail from the top of the rock. We'll walk down there, uh, leaving the castle esplanade at the moment. Then we'll go down, we'll pop into... Before a, we leave the castle, yep. though, I, there's a couple of really cool things okay. to see. You've got one of the most precious pieces of church architecture in Scotland there. An old Norman chapel? Yes, we've got St. Margaret Chapel, who, of course, Queen Margaret first met King Malcolm of Scotland in Dunfermline. Huh. And she came over and the chapel was built for her in the 12th century. So this is 900 years old. It's, it's yeah. remarkable. Yeah. And uh, everybody gathers together to hear the shooting of the gun. The one o'clock gun, which, as everybody says, what time does it go off? It goes off at one o'clock. Not 12 o'clock. No, one o'clock. That would take 12 cannon fires, so too that many. would cost, cost too much. Yes. The Scots are good, yeah. uh, frugal people, so we'll set our clocks by the one o'clock gun The instead. one o'clock gun, and as it goes off, people who live in Edinburgh check their watches. People who don't live in Edinburgh jump out of their skins. Before we leave the castle, i got to say there's a lot in the castle, but if you're a military history fan, the military museum in the castle... Absolutely. By contrast with other castles across Scotland, Edinburgh remains as it was when it was a garrison and a prison. Uh Um, So it has a lot more military tradition in it than others. So we have the National Museum of War, which is inside the castle. Now, you might think Museum of War, ghastly, grisly. It tells it through the story of the people, Mm -hmm. how they went to war, how it was the only way to take the king's shilling, was the only way to make money, and how you could only become an officer if you bought your own uniform, and only the rich could afford their uniforms. I love the way that that military museum humanizes the whole military story, Mm -hmm. and Scotland's had more than its share of war, that's for sure. Now, Helen, we leave the castle... And the first thing we come upon on the right is a very commercial whiskey centre. Yes, the Scotch whiskey experience. Yeah, it's, and it's, that started life as a school. Was that right? Yes, it started life as a school and then it was taken over. It's a very good experience. It's not a distillery, but it takes you through the process. You sit in a barrel and you go around in a little train and it tells you the story of how whiskey is made. Some people call it Malt Disney. It's such a, it's such a, like you get on this ride and you sit there, it's kind of family friendly. But you, you get to know how they make the whiskey. And at the end, of course. And you get a wee taste at the end. And it has one of the biggest collections of Scotch whiskey anywhere. Now, Liz, the next site that I'd want to stop at would be a museum that celebrates the, the literary heroes. Well, if you think of the Royal Mile and wandering down the Royal Mile, 
I would always liken it to taking the, the bones out of a fish. You've got the long backbone and then coming off it, you've got all the little herring bones. Mm-hmm. And those herring bones are these little closes and winds and paths that lead through from one area to the next. Mm-hmm. It's lovely just to wander up them and get all the surprises of what you find within them. And if you've got one called Lady Stairs Close, then you'll find an old townhouse where the rich residents of the city of Edinburgh once lived, now converted into the Writers' Museum, celebrating the life of three of our major authors, Robert Burns, Sir Walter Scott and Robert Louis Stevenson. And it's free, which is always music to a Scotsman's ears. It's free. It's free, and it's a chance to celebrate Scottish literature. And Helen, when I step in there, I can almost imagine Robbie Burns reciting poetry to high society. Oh, yes. Because it's an elegant Mm. uh, mansion, now turned into a museum. Try to capture that moment, because I've got this idea of Robbie Burns celebrating Scottish traditions to the really elegant high society. The rooms are small and it's got balconies, you like a library. Yeah. And you can just imagine up there, him up there maybe reciting to a mouse. We sleek at coor and timorous beastie, oh, what a panic's in thy breastie, that thou should start a wassy hasty with bicker and brattle. I would be raithering and chasey with murder and battle. What on earth did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the thing about Robert Burns was he would speak in Old Scots, which that was, and then the next verse is in English. So this would I'm, help. This yes, would I'm truly s- sorry man's dominion has broken nature's social union that makes thee startle at me, thy poor earthborn companion and fellow mortal. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're joined by two wonderful Scottish guides who can share with us their pride, their rich heritage, as we visit the capital city of Edinburgh. Our guests are Helen Houston and Liz Lister. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Steve's calling from Montgomery in Texas. Steve, have you been thinking about Scotland? Absolutely, and I've been enjoying listening to you talk. My wife and I are going to be going to Edinburgh. We have a castle tour already planned and uh, a Scottish Highlands tour day trip planned. But we have two afternoons that are not planned. I want to know what your guides want us to do in those two afternoons. What is the main thing that you would really want us to experience about Edinburgh? Well, that's a very good question. We'll start with Liz. If, if somebody's coming into, how many days do you have all together, Steve? going to be there for three days, three and a half days. Three days. You're doing a lot of the predictable stuff. Liz, what's one thing that, that Steve should be sure to make time for? Well, we've been talking about the old town of Edinburgh, which is a world UNESCO World Heritage Site, but we also have some of the finest neoclassical architecture, the new town, the Georgian new town. So a walk along the new town, built because they were so sick of the dirt and squalor that they wanted space and elegance and uh, grandeur. And so wandering around that, perhaps ending up at the Georgian House, which not only shows the outside of the building, but also what it was like to live inside these grand residences. So so the Georgian House, remember, there was a series of King Georges, and uh, when America was fighting its revolution, the colonies were all upset about King George. So this is about uh, that period, you know, 200, 250 years ago, and that was neoclassicism. And when you have the neoclassicism in Paris, in England, it was called Georgian, and Edinburgh was one of the first planned cities from the Georgian era. They have grid-planned streets named after Georgian kings and queens, Um, and this Georgian house lets you see a slice of life from that day. And King George was making sure that after the defeat of the Jacobites at Culloden, which you'll probably hear about on your trip up into the Mm -hmm. Highlands, 
There was political stability for the first time. There was economic growth. And he was making sure that everybody knew he was in charge, putting his name on the squares, his wife's name, Queen Charlotte Square, his two sons, the princes, Princess Street. He was making sure everybody knew all about it. So you're going to spend some time in the Georgian town across the valley, kind of, from the old town. And Helen, what's what would you recommend that uh, Steve and his family are sure to do? Right, well, well, Steve, I would suggest that if you just took a bus ride out of Edinburgh, about you know, 40 minutes on the bus, to Roslyn Chapel. Now, Roslyn Chapel is a beautiful little chapel. In recent years, more known because of it comes into the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, but it actually was built in 1446. And round the the windows of the chapel, you'll find images of plants that at that time were only found in the what we now know as the Americas. And we all know that it was 1492 that Columbus sailed the ocean blue. But in 1446, they were carving plants from America in Roslyn Chapel. Maize, corn, that kind of thing. What, 50 years before Columbus? Before Columbus, showing that the Vikings were there and there were Scots. The prince of the Vikings was a Sinclair from Roslyn Chapel. Wow. Steve, I'd recommend also uh, the Britannia, the Queen's uh, ship still moored. Absolutely. It's an ideal one to do because it's an audio tour, so you can progress at your own right pace. And people would think that the Queen, the royal family of the United Kingdom, would live in great luxury. It's the austerity which really hits you. Everything of the highest quality, but the personal nature of it, the photographs Mm -hmm. and the stories that it tells of how the prince and princesses would play with the yachties, who were the yachtsmen of the Royal Yacht, the Royal Navy, who were each given a responsibility in looking after them. It's a bit of a side trip, but it's well worth the time. And I think it's just a beautiful sight. And it gives you a sense of uh, getting out of the centre of Edinburgh as well. Hey, thanks for your call, Steve. Thank you so much. Scottish tour guides Helen Houston and Liz Lister are taking us to the walkable sites of their grand old capital, Edinburgh, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. And Dusty's calling from Lakemont in Georgia. Uh, What what is um, a fun memory you have from your time in Edinburgh? One of the things that was the most heartwarming was a a statue and a gravesite that's called Greyfriars Bobby. It's just off the Royal Mile, Mm -hmm. and uh, you branch off to the right there going towards the the old chapel that built in 1600, and there's a statue of a dog that you'll see out in the middle of a square. And it's kind of odd because normally you don't see a statue to a dog, and it's kind of polished in certain places uh, where people have rubbed it. And this dog, uh, the story that goes with it, he was the dog of a policeman. And he was so faithful. The policeman finally died of old age, and the dog came and visited the grave every day until the dog actually died and stood watch uh, at the grave there in the chapel. So this and, and is, it's a wonderful story. And this yeah. is called the Greyfriars Bobby. Liz, who's the Greyfriar? Who's the Bobby? Right, Greyfriars is the church, the church of the Greyfriars, the Grey Habits. Okay. The Jock Grey was buried there. And the story goes that for 14 years, Bobby tended his grave at one o'clock. The one o'clock gun would go off. And just as he had done when Jock was alive, he'd go down to the pie shop and get a bone and a bowl of water. 
Now, the cynics amongst us, I hate to, to create a cynicism <laughs> here. Oh, no. The cynics would say that 14 years plus is actually quite a long time for a little Sky Terrier. But business was good because all these people were coming, visiting the grave and looking to see it was Victorian times. So they valued... The, the Scottish Terrier did go then, so that's good. Yeah, it yeah. just wasn't maybe 14 years. No, but perhaps business was so good in the pubs and the hotels and the restaurants that Bobby Mark II, as we would say in Scotland, <laughs> popped his clogs. He went to that great kennel in the sky and he brought in a lookalike Bobby so that it would keep the business turning over. Oh, Scottish ingenuity. <laughs> <laughs> That's for the cynics. Dusty, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Take care. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Liz Lister and Helen Houston about the wonders of their city, Edinburgh. We've talked about the Georgian city on the other side. That's the new city. We've walked halfway down the Royal Mile. And when we finish off, We'll drop by St. Giles Church. Liz, what's the importance of St. Giles? St. Giles, they reckon that there's been a church there since the 6th century. And in a borough, which was what the settlement was called, which is why it gets the name Edinburgh, there was a church, a market cross, and a toll booth to collect the tolls. And you'll see all of that and right there. And you'll see there. all of that in the vicinity of the church. But the church itself is the High Church of Scotland, and it's a magnificent building to go and visit. And if you're into Reformation history, John Knox preached mm. here. And in fact, he's buried uh, in the parking lot. He is. Uh, John Knox preached fire and brimstone from the pulpit of St. Giles. He was a man who wanted simplicity after the elaborate nature of the Catholic Church. He wanted everything to be very plain and simple. So it's perhaps fitting that he's now in a plain and simple grave underneath parking lot 623 years ago, where the previous graveyard is now a car park. And what is the the Protestant denomination we associate with John Knox? Presbyterian. Presbyterian. So that would be that sort of austerity. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a major difference in Protestant in Scotland and England. In Scotland, Mm -hmm. it was from the people up. And Uh so although there was great destruction through the Reformation with the destruction of the idols and the stained glass windows, out of it came the flowering of education because every parish or churchy region had a school. And so we had 70% literacy in the 17th century, which was why Scots could go all over the world because they could find employment. And Helen, at the very bottom of the Royal Mile, you come to a palace, the Holyrood Palace. How is that near and dear to the patriotic souls of the Scottish people? Well, the Palace of Holyrood House grew up out of the Augustinian Abbey down there. Uh And for Scots, um, the Augustinian Abbey or the Abbey was started by Queen Margaret in the sort of 11th century and then created as an abbey in the 12th century. But it is the home, the official residence of the Queen when she comes to Scotland. Mm -hmm. So people know the Queen in Balmoral, which is further north, but that is her own private residence. The Palace of Holyrood House is the Queen's official residence. And you can generally tour that if the Queen's you can not tour in that. residence. You can tour that if the Queen's not in residence mm-hmm. and they also have a very good audio guide to go around. Very important for the Holyrood Palace. And if you're not a royalist, across the street <laughs> is an impressive new building. London gave you Scottish people the opportunity to build your own Parliament building. We did, highly controversial. And When Scotland was eventually given the power, increased evolution to actually have our own Scottish Parliament, They discussed at length where it was going to be situated and eventually it was built on the site of an old brewery. And initially it was expected to cost £60 million and it actually ended up costing £440 million. So they kind of went over budget and it's highly controversial. Um, If you visit Glasgow, um, you might hear of Charles Rennie Mackintosh. So a lot of his imagery is used in the Parliament 
Enrique Morales was a Catalan architect who wanted it to grow out of the land because it's such an iconic position that it sits in. So he used Scottish stone, Scottish wood, Scottish materials, and he used Charles Rennie Mackintosh motifs. And it's a celebration of Scottish independent spirit, Scottish pride, completely made from Scottish materials, and it's open to the public and wonderful tours to get an insight into what's going on politically in Scotland today. Helen Houston, Liz Lister, thank you so much for giving us a better understanding of your beautiful city, Edinburgh. Thank you. Thank you. You'll find web links to our guests with each week's show notes. It's on our website at ricksteves.com slash radio. Our next stop takes us to the sunbathed delights of the region of Andalusia in the south of Spain. That's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll search for Venus in the museums of Europe in just a bit. Before the coronavirus upended everything, tourism statistics showed that Spain was second only to France in the number of foreign visitors it attracts each year. The World Economic Forum even ranked Spain as the best-equipped country in the world for handling its tourism popularity. I think Spain's worth visiting more than once thanks to the variety of its regional differences. What we often think of as the essence of Spain is what you'll find bursting out all over in Andalusia. That's thanks to the influences of its historic Moorish heritage and its famously sunny climate. Right now, we're joined by three tour guides from Spain to explore what makes Andalusia so special. Jorge Roman lives in Madrid. Francisco Glaria comes from Pamplona, and Robert Wright now makes his home in Sevilla. It's nice to have all of you sharing your insights into Spanish culture. Just before we get started, what are the sort of clichetic icons of Andalusia? Just give me the word. What do we think? Flamenco. Flamenco. Flamenco, Flamenco would be one thing, yeah. Also the, uh, the land of the conquistadores, where they departed to the New World in ah, the past. Okay, yeah. uh, Sevilla was a departure point Correct. for a lot of the uh, great explorers going to... Uh, right. I mean, Columbus got his marching orders, I think, in mm-hmm. Sevilla. Mm-hmm. That's right. You've got uh, Jerez. Is that Jerez? Jerez, the sherry wine. Sherry, oh, sherry, yeah. sherry Olive yeah. oil. Yeah. The Alhambra. 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 And the, the horses of, of mm, the yeah. horses. Yeah. Beautiful Spanish stallions. And land of the toros. Now, Jorge, as a madrileño, is that what a Madrid person is called? Madrileño. Madrileño. <laughs> when you think of Andalusia, yeah. you're from Castile, right? In the center of Spain. I basically. live in Madrid. Yeah. 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 But you're from Andalusia. Your family was there. Yeah. What do people in the big city look at the people of Andalusia? What do they see? They see a place where they can go on holidays, of course, but also yeah. lately they have uh, that kind of chance of gastronomy issues going down, down there. People are getting gastronomy. Up, yeah, yeah, they're getting very foody, in the sense of uh, Andalusian gastronomy, especially inland. You know, the when you go to the Mediterranean part or the Atlantic part of Andalusia. It's like a touristic resort anywhere you go. But okay, now, that's the Costa del Sol. That's the Costa del Sol, yeah. So I would say, yeah. and I'll just be bold, mm-hmm. the Costa del Sol is one long paved tourist trap. It is, absolutely, you know, I agree. I mean, mm-hmm. there's you can find some charm there, but the interior is the more interior. cultural. But yeah, okay. absolutely. So how would the cuisine be distinct in Andalusia from the rest of Spain? Everything's more natural. I mean, when you're big cities, you just go and everything is almost processed. Yeah. But there, in little towns, it's very normal to find a family that they have their own farm and they're using their fresh products at the season. You don't get tomatoes from a hot house. Yeah. When you eat a salad there and you eat the tomatoes and you eat the veggies in there, they're like 
going back to your childhood. So you're eating local, you're eating Very with local. the season, Correct, and yeah. you've got that wonderful explosion. And with three, four way. ingredients, you can make an amazing stew. In What's your favorite meal if you go to Andalusia? Oh my goodness, gazpacho is one of them, but gazpacho. only in season, only in summer. You there's know, another gazpacho. There's another cold uh, vegetable drink. Sal- Salmorejo. It's a little bit thicker. Mm-hmm. Do you find that mostly in the summer because it's for the hot time? That's or? right. It's a cold soup. Yeah. And the ingredients is just uh, bread, garlic, olive oil, and some tomato. That's it. Four ingredients. Amazing. That is a good example yeah. of that, that simplicity, but that quality. Right. Francisco, from the north of Spain, when you think of Andalusia, what do you think? I think about flamenco. You it's, do? Yeah. Andalusia has something that's called duende. It's uh, something magical. It's something that it's in the air, and you feel it. And in the flamenco, it's like a concentrated version of that power of Andalusia. Now, is that kind of related to you're in the north, so you would be more... Celtic. Celtic, yeah. More yeah. predictable, more more cerebral, less emotional. Is, is there any of that? Okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you personally. Yeah. In, in the yeah. south, though, you've got that, yeah, that I mean, more uh, throw your arms up in the air. And, it uh, is that Andalusia, it was culturally dominated by the Muslims. Right. We think Muslims, we tend to think about, you know, Al-Qaeda and all of these things. No, the Muslims was the most advanced culture at that time. Very open people, a lot of greatness. And up there in the north, we did not have that. So we don't have that refinement, that pleasure of, of beauty, the pleasure of beautiful things. I mean, when you go to see the Alhambra, it's just the pleasure of perfection. I mean... You're going to be smelling flowers. You're going to be just listening to water, guitar music. So all of that magic is the Andalusian magic. It's what we call duende. You just took me to Cordoba. Perfect place. And Cordoba is the great Muslim yes. heritage survives there mm-hmm. in the south of Spain. A lot of people, when they think of the Muslim hordes, you know, I mean, Europe was threatened by the Muslims uh, from Vienna and then uh, coming across Gibraltar. And we forget that, you know, when Europe was pretty much in the Dark Ages, the light was coming from oh, there. Islam, mm-hmm. and uh, it came into Spain, and, and today you feel that sophistication. Yeah, Robert Wright, you've lived all over the place. Uh, you've got a passion for the Spanish and Portuguese languages, and, and you've settled in Sevilla and Andalusia. Why did you choose uh, Andalusia? The easy reason is that my husband is from there, so there you go. He's Sevillano, okay. and uh, and I decided to get married, and it was a perfect and that's his place. That's his place. Uh, but other other than that, just to picture a perfect city in Spain, uh, a city that has like everything you need from a big city, but has a small town vibe to it, and also prices are very affordable. It's not like Madrid or Barcelona, where the concentration of the population and lots of people and drives prices up, and it's big and busy. Sevilla is. Like the biggest small town you'll ever find, I think, in Europe. It's great. You know, it's it really fantastic. is. And I was just walking across Sevilla a few months ago, and I came upon a square. And I was going from one museum to another gallery, and I just paused on the square, and the mothers were there with their children. Everyone's and out. The retired people were there, and there was a little playground, and there Talk was the to neighbors. Take a stroll. The weather's always really nice, except in August. I mean, it does get a little hot. hot then, but it, <laughs> <laughs> a little hot. A little hot. hot. I was, that's one thing I can't handle coming from Seattle is the heat in the but summer of Sevilla. We, we compensate with great winters. Winters yeah. are great, and also it's off-season. And you're a gay couple. Yeah, it's amazing. A lot of people think of Spain as a very Catholic country and a very conservative country, right. which uh, some of that is true, depending on where you're at. But right. in general, it's a very open place. Uh, Spain was actually adopted gay marriage in 2005. It was the third country in the world, I believe, to even oh, okay. 
Just to give you a good example is my husband and I, we walk hand in hand down the streets in Sevilla and nobody even looks twice. We're getting to know the Andalusia region of Spain on Travel with Rick Steves with tour guides Robert Wright, Francisco Claria, and Jorge Roman. From my experience, the region's capital city, Seville, is a must-see for visitors. But you can't forget Granada and Córdoba. Jorge, how would you describe what distinguishes these three cities in the region for people who are planning a visit to Andalusia? Sevilla Flamenco, uh-huh. Granada Alhambra, uh-huh. and Córdoba the mosque now cathedral. The and mosque it, which has the big cathedral built in the middle it. of it. Got okay, it. so those are the big iconic experiences or sites. Francisco, if you think of those three towns and you have only a few days, which two would you visit? You have to go yes or yes to Sevilla. Sevilla, yeah. And I would choose Granada. The vibe of the city I love. And I'm deeply in love with the Alhambra. The Alhambra. Why are you in love with the Alhambra? It's, it's so different. I'm from the north, so mm-hmm. it's so different from what I'm used to. It's the light. It's the way the sun sets. Yeah. It's breathtaking. One of my favorite moments is directly across up in the Abathene, mm-hmm. and there's the famous square where everybody hangs out and the sun goes down, and there's gypsy musicians, and they're playing there. And it's a, it's a concert. You just get a drink, sit down on a rock and watch them. You got the sun warming the rocks of the Alhambra. It glows this beautiful color. And you go, wow, what took me so long? I have arrived. Yeah. The view of the Alhambra from the Albaicene, it's, to me, perfection. Oh, man. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking the, the highlights of Andalusia. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. We have an email from Martina in Atlanta. And Martina writes... I feel so privileged to have spent 10 days in Andalusia recently. I hit the big three, Granada, Sevilla, and Córdoba. I wanted to see a real flamenco performance, so I went to one of the caves in Sacramonte in Granada. It was touristy, but really fun. I also saw a performance at the Flamenco Museum in Sevilla. That was very different, clearly more authentic. Can you speak about the differences? Which type of performance is the real deal? And is there such a thing? Robert. There are definitely all kinds of uh, flamenco performances in southern Spain because you have so much tourism. There's a lot of people who go, and of course, it's synonymous with Andalucía. So uh, there are the more typical touristy places that often will try to ply you with drinks and basically charge you high admission fees and keep you there for a long time. And the shows are of questionable quality. There's a lot of them on the main drag that yep. really they just busloads of tourists come in there. You know, there are a lot that really have a mission of keeping the, the culture alive, the flamenco culture. And when you find one of them, they're touristic because it's the only way for them to be in sure. business. But it really is genuine. Those are great. It's at an hour where you're not staying up past your bedtime. Mm-hmm. It's affordable and it's instructive. And especially at the Flamenco Museum because they are an educational facility facility, and exactly. they want to teach you what's going on with flamenco. And and that's the flamenco museum that Martina recommended here exactly. in Sevilla. Mm-hmm. And in some of them, you can pay a little extra and go to a flamenco class. You can have a class. Mm-hmm. All right. Jorge, mm-hmm. we've been talking about the cities, but there's also the route of the Pueblos Blancos. Yeah, that's right. I, was, I love tell, <laughs> tell us what the route of the Pueblos Blancos is. Uh, the province of Malaga, uh, the north of the province, is the beginning, let's say, of the, uh, that route of the Pueblos Blancos, and it goes from that area towards west in the inland. Uh-huh. Okay, And it goes one of these beautiful cities in the world, which is called Ronda. And first of all, the route of the Pueblos Blancos means in English? The route of the white villages. So these are the whitewashed villages. Correct. These classic little hill-capping villages. That's right. And they're white because historically... 
That comes from the Muslim domination mm -hmm. that we had for almost 800 years, and uh, there were many myths about it that to keep away the bad spirits, and there is the, just to whitewash because in winter it keeps the, the house warm inside and cool in the summer. So natural insulation or heat Correct, or something. Yeah. Yeah. And they still use that in the north of Africa, and it's part of the culture of the south of Spain. So you talked about Rwanda. What are some experiences you might have if you go from Rwanda into the villages of these mountains? Um, well, I mean, the roads are so winding and so scenic that they're beautiful, suddenly you find a little lake here, and then just round one of the bandits, a hill with a castle on the very top, and that beautiful white town surrounding the castle, and the blue sky, beautiful. Are you thinking Zahara? Zahara is one of those. Beautiful. Uh, Grazalema. Grazalema, yeah. yeah. And then nearby, of course, you have Jerez. Of course. You guys all talked about the icons of Andalusia. <laughs> you got your horses and you got your sherry. Correct. Jerez, J-E-R-E-Z, uh -huh. is the Christian name of Sherish, which is the Arabic old name of the city, Sherish. That's why they call it Sherry, because for an English-speaking person to say Jerez is really Too complicated. Difficult. Sherry. Sherry. <laughs> so that's why they call it Sherry. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jorge Roman, Robert Wright, and Francisco Gloria about the wonders of Andalusia. Let's finish just with a, a final thought. Francisco, if you wanted to be like a temporary local in Andalusia, what would you do? I would go for the bulls. To me, uh, the bull culture is something I really like. Either go to a bullfight, or if you think that could be a little bit too risque, go to a bull farm and learn from the bulls in the land. You can actually, as a tourist, go mm -hmm. to a bull farm. There are many bull farms that can be visitable, and it's perfect. All right. And Robert Wright, what would you do to, to feel the soul of Andalusia? I think anyone who really wants to feel what it's like to be a local and feel the soul of Andalusia would be to come to Sevilla during Holy Week. It may be a little bit more expensive. It may be a little bit more crowded, but that's the point. You have to get into these festivals when you can. And honestly, when you stand there at the perfect corner waiting on the procession to come by, mm. you hear it coming toward you. Mm. And then all of a sudden, the float turns around the corner and you see those beautiful candles lit up. You smell the incense, and then everybody gets perfectly quiet to give respect as the Virgin passes. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. And then you go on and you see the next one, and the next one, and the next one. It's a whole week of that. That's beautiful. Jorge, what would be an experience that you wouldn't miss next time you go to Andalusia? Definitely to go to the southwest of Andalusia and go to a little town called Aracena. It's the land of the Serrano Ham. Habugo is the place, and that is a delicacy. Sorry for anybody else that makes that kind of ham, but I have to be a defender of that. That is a real, I have to say it's Rick, please allow me, gastronomical orgasm to have one of those uh, chunks of uh, ham in your hand and then just, oh my God, this is unique, you know, absolutely unique. And it's one of the great experiences of Andalusia. And of your life. Francisco, Jorge, Robert, gracias. Gracias. Gracias, gracias Rick. Thank Time you. for ham. Let's go. <laughs> Any traveler who's visited Europe's art museums has probably noticed that they tend to be filled with one very popular subject, women. Here to talk with me about that is my friend and co-author, Gene Openshaw. Hi, Rick. Hey, Gene. There sure are a lot of famous paintings and statues featuring women. Women standing, women seated, reclining on beds. Queens, warriors, angels. Goddesses, saints. These works of art capture the many different timeless aspects of women. They're what some scholars have dubbed Venuses. Hmm. 
Here's one really famous example. You'll know it. Let me paint a picture for you. It's a beautiful spring day on the Mediterranean. Suddenly she appears. It's Venus, the goddess of love. Mm. She poses gracefully, her body gently curving. Now I can see her Venus de Milo. No, this one has arms. <laughs> the maiden rises from the turquoise sea. She's borne aloft on a seashell. The wind blows. Her hair billows like a shampoo okay, commercial. Okay, now I got it. She's it's the birth of Venus by Botticelli. Exactly. Or as many tourists call her, sure, Venus, Venus on a half on shell. A... <laughs> <laughs> so Botticelli's Venus, that's just one of many Venuses in the long history of art. In fact, it stretches way back to the very first objects ever created by the human species. We're talking about the first known statues of woman the famed Venus of Willendorf. What was that, Gene? 25,000 years old. Yeah, and it's really this little plump little It's like three inches, four inches tall. Yeah. I I call her the Pillsbury Dough Girl. (laughs) Yes. It's because all of her life-giving features, breasts and butt or so on, are fat. They're exaggerated. It's just really the very most essential fertility symbol. Living at the mercy of nature, these people probably worshipped Mother Nature. Well, fast forward about 20,000 years, and what do we find? Uh, Now, they've lost a lot of weight in that time. Must have been the paleo diet. Uh, These figurines are skinny. They're just like little supermodels. These are the Cycladic figurines from the the Greek islands that we visit. Yes. And no one knows what these were about. Were these fertility figures? Or were they used in funerals? Were they good luck charms? Or were they just prehistoric Barbie girls, just dolls. No one knows. Okay, and then during the classical golden age of Greece, uh, you've got the sort of the iconic These Venus are the de Milo, winged victory. The classic Venuses. On the one hand, they portrayed realistic women. They're, the Greeks were great at that. But on the other hand, they had idealized faces and perfectly balanced proportions. For the Greeks, it seemed to capture the perfect geometrical order that they saw in the cosmos. So kind of a sort of a religious thing. And then when the Christian era comes, these Venuses morph into Marys. They become Marys. Venus, the earthly goddess of love, suddenly becomes Mary, the symbol of divine love. And you see these Marys, these Madonnas everywhere. In fact, so many churches are even called Notre Dame. Our Lady. That's right. So then the theme of women, it carries on through the Renaissance. You got, you know, Botticelli who did his Venuses. Uh, you got Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci. Not only were these women and Venuses, but again, they captured this perfect balance and harmony that they saw in God's creation. And even in the modern era, we see Picasso has this uh, fixation really on Venuses and women. Venuses and women, his Guernica has a Mary and a child in it, uh, a modern type of Pietà almost. Gene, it seems that images of women have been created since the beginning of time to celebrate their power, their beauty, and their symbolism. Yeah, I think of France, whose national symbol is a woman, a kind of every woman known as Marianne. She symbolizes the French courage and the ongoing fight for freedom. You know, you see a Marianne on, on the facade of almost every city hall. You see her on the Arc de Triomphe right there in the middle of Paris. Images like these really pack a punch, whether as fierce revolutionaries or as gentle Madonnas. Or as goddesses, or nymphs, or factory workers. It's clear that the women of art have always represented our greatest and most valued ideals. Gene, it's been fun riffing on culture with you. It's a good reminder that a little art and history can add a whole new dimension to your travels. Thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. You can also hear Gene and me discuss visiting Madrid's massive Prado Art Museum. 
on our Spain-themed program number 595. You'll find it in our Travel with Rick Steves archives from February 2020. It's at ricksteves.com slash radio. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazmara Hall. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Amara Kipnikon. We get promotional support from Sheila Gruzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find more at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.